find Ruth. And as we, we go through the book, um, we have in the back there, a book that I just wanted to recommend. Now, it's not really a commentary on Ruth, but it's more of a kind of a, a devotional book on Ruth, I guess you might say. Uh, but it's by Paul Miller. Maybe you've heard of the book uh, A Praying Life. Uh, that's a, maybe a more well-known book by Paul Miller, but this one's called A Loving Life. And if you would like one of these, um, they are on the back bookshelf and we're just asking if you would like one and you're able to, just donate $5 for that just to kind of help offset some of the cost of that book. And it's just a really encouraging book as it walks through Ruth. And you'll hear some echoings probably in my sermons from, from this book as we go through it. But we'll begin. And, and as I pray this morning... I, this week, as I was at home, or during my well, during my weeks, in and day in and day out, I've been reading my doing my devotional time from this Bible. It's called the Prayer Bible, just because it has old prayers from saints of old that are are in throughout the different passages. And each book, as it begins, it has just a little note about just different things within that book that really drive us to prayer. And as I read that, I was really encouraged by that. I just wanted to read that intro to the book of Ruth in this this prayer Bible. It says, life is perplexing. We are often knocked off our feet by hard circumstances and left wondering what God is doing. The book of Ruth encourages us to take, to take, to, to encourage us to take such circumstances to God. For it shows us that God is doing strange, strangely wonderful things through the pains in our lives. When difficulty comes, we can press deeper into God in prayer rather than growing cynical. God brought about David and ultimately the Savior of the world through Ruth's hard and perplexing life. What might he bring about through our difficulties? I thought that was a good intro, even as we kind of begin to dive in and even begin just to pray this morning that the Lord would use our study in Ruth in our lives as we grow. Your Father, so Ruth, whenever you begin a book, like going to the book of Ruth, you need to ask some questions. And one of those questions, a really good question just to ask is, who is the author? And sometimes it's a really clear, obvious thing, and sometimes it's not in Ruth. The author of Ruth is, is unknown. Uh, there's some speculation and has been through the ages, but really we don't know. But we know that this is a book divinely inspired by God for the people at that time and through the ages that we might know more of who God is, that we might understand more of his plan and the way he works and how it all, all of this even points us to Jesus. So, so we have an unknown author, but then we have a date. So when was the date? When was it probably written? Again? Unknown, all right? We, we don't know for sure, but we know that it was written after the time of King David because at the end, uh, we see a genealogy that talks about King David. So it's after that time and probably a good bit, even written a good bit after the setting of Ruth because there's one place in Ruth where there's a custom that is described and then it, it explains that custom and it says, and this is in chapter 4, verse 7 in Ruth. It, it says, this was a custom of former times in Israel. 
So it must have been a little bit after that time because they had to come in and explain, hey, this was a custom during that time. So, so we don't know for sure uh, the exact setting, but we know as far as the date of it being written, but the setting of it is during the time of Judges. And we'll get into that in just a little bit. Another good question to ask as you kind of walk through a book is, what are, or what are, the, what are the themes? Uh, what are some of the themes as we're going to walk through that? And a couple major themes that we're going to see as we walk through Ruth, one of them is redemption. Redemption of God's faithfulness to his redemption plan. So we are going to see that the God is one who rescues and he redeems. And ultimately, this is going to, again, point us forward to, to Jesus. And we see God's faithfulness, that he's working things out. Even in the midst of a broken and a fallen world, the Lord is bringing about these things. And we saw that in First Peter as well, those themes of suffering, yet glory, death, yet resurrection, sorrow, and yet salvation. So we see that God sovereignly moves through trial to bring about his redemption and ultimately showing us his steadfast love through Jesus. So we're going to see that as we walk through Ruth. Also, we'll see the deep sacrificial love of God. We also see that love, that deep sacrificial love in relationships as well. We see it played out in the relationships between Ruth and Naomi and Boaz, and we see these, but they ultimately point us to that loving kindness, that sacrificial love of our God. And throughout the Old Testament, we see this word in Hebrew is of hesed. And you've probably heard, maybe if you've grown up in the church, you've heard that word of, of hesed. And we sometimes go to the Hebrew to, to explain this word, this word that means this love, a loving kindness, a steadfast love. And we'll actually use the Hebrew word because in English, not a really perfect word that really fills up all of that the word hesed means. And if you've ever learned a language before or you had a language in high school or whatever, you might have come across it. There's sometimes a word that just has a, a, a meaning, and almost like almost not just a meaning but a feeling to it that a, a word in English might not totally just fulfill. And we found that in, in China and when I was in Ecuador as well. You'll have these words that there's just not an English word that describes this. And you just have to with your friends that know, like your missionary friends or foreign friends that know the language, you have to use that word because it just doesn't work to use another word. So, so hesed, this deep sacrificial love. And Paul Miller actually gives a really great definition, one of the better definitions I think I've read of it that helped me have a better picture of what hesed means and this love that we're going to see between the, the people in the story and how God is showing his love to the people. This is the definition. A word unique, it's a word unique to Hebrew that combines love and loyalty. I love that. It's love and loyalty together. Sometimes hesed is translated steadfast love. And you read the Psalms, Steadfast love, it's that hesed word. It combines commitment and sacrifice. Hesed is, it's a one-way love. It's a love without an exit strategy. When you live with hesed love, you bind yourself uh, to the object of your love, no matter what the response is. So your response to that, the other person, is entirely independent of how that person has treated you. Hesed is a stubborn love. So there's a good definition, a stubborn love, a loyal love. And we see that in the midst of even today between Ruth and Naomi. So we're going to see these themes. And as we look in this story, it's an ancient story. 
And yet, at the same time, we still live in that world today in the sense that there is a world where there is tragedy and loss and loneliness and grief and brokenness. So we walk in that world, and we know that. The world is still broken by both our own sin and the sin of others and just the fallenness of this world because of sin. And we we also know, as we're going to see and walk through today, there's a deep low point in life for Naomi in this book and even at the beginning. And we have walked through those. Even if I were to ask you just what is a low point kind of in your walk or in your life, you'd probably be able to even just paint a picture. Maybe even in your mind, there's a vivid scene that comes to your mind of that moment. Um, for us, it's a story I've described before, but us sitting on a tarmac in China as it's raining and we're needing to, to get out of the country to get some medical care. And that was just a low moment. There's this picture I have in my mind. Or for you, maybe it's, it's even that of a, of a graveside picture that comes to your mind. Or maybe it's an email that comes through of a notice of a job loss or a child that, that storms out of a house. Or I don't know what it might be, but you have a picture. We have those low moments that we walk through or or maybe even just moments of a week, even like this week of standing beside my RAV, that front end was crushed in because of my own uh, mistake. And um, we have days and weeks like that. But we know these low moments that come into our life that the Lord uses. But it can cause us to also cry out in great lament, which we'll see in Naomi as well. Like the psalmist who cries out in Psalm thirty-five twenty-two, You have seen, O Lord, be not silent. Oh, Lord, do not be far from me. So we know that. Um, we know these things are. If you haven't yet walked through them, you will. And this is a time to anchor your heart in these truths in this book as we look at the steadfast love of our God. So we need to read these. We need to be reminded to entrust our soul to a faithful creator that we talked about in First Peter and be reminded of these ancient stories of the kindness, the faithfulness of our God working through unusual circumstances to bring about salvation. So we need to walk through these types of books. So let's kind of dig in a little bit. And the first few verses in Ruth, it's it's a prologue. And as we see this prologue, it, it takes us down a path really to that lowest point in the life of, of, I should say Naomi. I don't know why I have Ruth in mind up there. So it's Naomi. So, um, so in your notes as you're writing that down, just write Naomi, not Ruth. So this is we're at the lowest point in the life of Naomi. And it kind of walks down, and we have step by step down to this low point in her life. And it begins in verse 1 where it says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was famine in the land. So we see in this, it was the time of the judges. Yeah. The book right before Ruth is the book of Judges, and it's at a time where it's a low point in the history of, of Israel, of the people of God. And if you're familiar with Judges, and if you're not, there's this cycle that happens in Judges where it begins, where the people of God, they, they rebel, they, they turn away from God, and they turn to foreign gods and, and foreign nations for help, and they turn away from the, from the Lord, their God, who'd rescued them out of Egypt. And then God will bring judgment he, sometimes he will raise up peoples from other nations to come and bring judgment upon them, sometimes even causing devastation of the land and, and bringing even famine upon the land. And judgment comes in from other nations. God uses foreign nations. And then the people will cry out to God to deliver them. And then the Lord will answer and he'll raise up a leader, a judge that comes in and conquers that foreign people for either all of Israel or a certain area and brings peace for a time. 
But then the people, what do they do? Then they begin to turn away from God and they begin to do their own thing and they go and they turn to false gods and, and other nations for help. And the cycle just begins again and again through Judges. And that was the time of Judges. And even if you're in, hopefully you're, you've opened up to Ruth already. If you go back to the very last verse in, in Judges, in verse 25, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That sums up that time period. And what that means is that people were doing really bad things. They were doing whatever they thought was best. And kind of in our day, it's um, people do whatever's right in our own eyes or whatever we feel is right or whatever our truth is. So we kind of walk through. We know these times. But in this, in the midst of Judges, Ruth is like this bright light. It's more of like a beacon of light in the midst of this time of Judges. And we see that God is working in the midst. And uh, one thing I wrote said in this that um, on one level, it's a tale of selfless love in a family. But at the bottom, it tells what God was doing when most of his people were doing whatever they pleased. So it's a picture of what God was doing when people were doing whatever they thought was best. And we have this picture. And then as we go down this road to this low point, the next thing we hear is that there was a famine in the land. There was a famine in the promised land. And we see in Deuteronomy, uh, when God gave the law to, to the nation of Israel, he said that if, you, that if they were to follow after him, that there would be great blessing. But if they rebelled against him and his way and his word, that there would be curses. And one of those was famine. And that happened at times, different times in the history of Israel. And here we have famine. And then as we continue down this road, we see this family. And it says, a man of Bethlehem in Judah went down, went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. So we have this family from Bethlehem of Judah. So Bethlehem, that's a a familiar town for us. Uh, it's where the birth of, of Jesus happened. It's where King David came from. So we have this family from Judah, from Bethlehem, that leave and they sojourn. So they dwell as, as foreigners in a foreign land and they go to, to Moab. And they go and they live in Moab. And they leave Bethlehem. And if you remember Bethlehem, what does Bethlehem mean? That means house of bread. So they leave the house of bread to go to Moab. And they kind of go to the other side of the tracks to, to, get, to get food. It's on the other side of the Dead Sea to the east and, and south of Bethlehem. And they go to the land of the Moabites. And the Moabites, if you re- might remember, they are the descendants of Lot. Um, Lot's son, who was born uh, through an incestuous relationship with Lot and his oldest daughter. And if you want to read about that, that sordid story, you can go to Genesis 19 and, and read up all about that. And I love Paul Miller. He says that it's the, the hillbilly cousins of the Israelites. So it's the hillbilly cousins of the Israelites. I, that is a, a beautiful picture. Um, but they, they're, historically, they were enemies of the people of Israel. And they go down and they sojourn. They dwell as foreigners in this land. And as they do this and as they depart and go down this road, now Ruth, in the book of Ruth, it doesn't give commentary on if they were in rebellion by going to Moab. 
but it seems that at the very least, this was a misstep of leaving the promised land to seek refuge in Moab during this time and going to this foreign country to, to leave the house of bread to, to find um, relief. So there's at least, at the very least, a misstep of a pragmatic decision that this seems best, so pragmatically I think I should do this. And often, though, we do walk down those roads where something might be seen as best just pragmatically. This seems maybe like the best decision. I know it might be going kind of outside of God's direction in my life, but it seems like it might have the best end result. And sometimes we walk in that way. Sometimes we, we think of things and say, well, I'll return to kind of the God's direction one day, but right now I, I think I need to walk down this road. I need to look at this right now or indulge in this for this time or lie about this in this little way for right now or do my own thing. And sometimes, you know, eventually I'm going to return back to the direction of God, but maybe not right now. But this is not a, it's not a good road to go down. It's not something to, to toy with, to mess with, to think, well, pragmatically, I think I should go this road outside of God's direction for the moment. But that leaves us to a place where we may not turn back um, into great fellowship with him. Instead, as we, we walk through decisions and direction, we do need to seek the wisdom of God. We need to be in prayer seeking for his spirit to give us great discernment. We need to seek his word and seek brothers and sisters in Christ as we walk down things. So anyway, we have this family sojourning in Moab. And we have one, the husband, who is Elimelech. In verse 2, the name of the man was Elimelech. And the name of his wife was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. So we have all these characters. And Elimelech, his name means, my God is king. So the one whose name is, my God is king, goes to Moab. With Naomi, whose name means pleasant uh, or delight. And we'll see how that plays in as well. As Naomi even sees the irony of her name of pleasant when she doesn't feel very pleasant. And then their two sons. And there's... Some speculation of what their, their names mean, but as I read, I, th- I feel like almost there's like meaning given to them that really fits with the story. So, uh, but the, the possible meanings, possible meanings of their names of Malon is sickly and Kilion is a frail person. So you can see how that kind of plays into the story, though. Their, their names play into the roles that they're playing in this story. So they sojourn. And then in verses, the second part of verse 2, uh, we see that they move from sojourning to, to remaining. And then later in verse 4, we see that they settle in Moab. They, they settle down to live there. So we see they were, yes, they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. So they sojourned, they remained. And then if we look down at, at verse 4, at the very end, it says they lived there about 10 years. They settled, they lived there. And there's kind of a progression of becoming more and more comfortable in, in Moab. Uh, that, that was becoming more home there. So then they can, we continue to go down, continue to go down this road. In verses 3 through 5, it spirals down to a point of loss and loneliness caused by death in the family. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. So here, Elimelech, we don't, we don't know how or why, but as a premature uh, maybe unexpected death that comes upon the husband of Naomi, and, and he dies. And there's a loss of protection that happens for Naomi because of the death of her husband. But she has two sons, um, so we see that there, there's still some hope there. 
in that, so the husband dies and she's left with two sons. And these two, these took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah and the name of the other is Ruth. So we see then that the sons are older and they marry and they marry Moabite women there in that, in that area. Again, it doesn't give commentary if this was a right decision, but it seemed like at the least it was a, a misstep maybe. Um, but we see, though, in the, New Test- or in, the New- in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy and in Judges, that they were forbidden, the people of Israel were forbid- forbidden to marry Canaanite women, but there's no prohibition against Moabite and, Anna- and the Ammonites. But uh, this is uh, the step that they make. Uh, but they marry, and they marry Ruth, whose name means friendship, and Orpah, whose may, name means stubborn. And um, so that we, we go down this road. But then what happens? In verse 5, and both Malon and Kilian died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So then her sons die, and she is alone in the land. And this is during a time where the husband and sons were huge protection for the wife. They were the breadwinners and the protection. Also, they were the ones who would carry on the family name. And also in Israel, they would be the ones through the, the son would inherit the land that was promised to them. It was part of the promise that the inheritance of the land would be passed down. And, and with the husband and the son's Dying, this is lost to Naomi. and She's left alone. Paul Miller says, Naomi has lost her life. She has entered into a living death. She has that Job moment where everything is pulled back that she is resting in. And she's brought down to this very low moment. And this picture of, of one who is, who is left alone. Without a lot of recourse. A lot, not a lot of safety net left for her. But... It's in that moment we see change and a pivot. And we see the Lord's plan and God's redemptive plan moving throughout as we move to verses 6 through 14. So we see this pivot. And we'll see several points as we go down. And we see God's plan unfolding. So let's begin it and, and look at verse 6. Then she arose, Naomi arose with her daughters-in-law and to return from the country of Moab. Here there's this shift, they return. There's this turning point. And this word for return, we see it several times in this chapter. It's a word that can also be used to mean of repentance. There's this symbolic act of repentance, a change of mind where they're turning from something and turning back. They're leaving Moab and going back to the promised land. And they've turned and they return home. They're returning home. And they begin, even in this moment, to see the loving kindness of God working in their lives. Not just in their lives, we're going to see, but in the nation of Israel. And also, ultimately, even to us, even today, as they return and they begin back. Naomi begins back with her daughters-in-law to Moab. And we continue, though. And we see that they return, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So there's been a change even in Israel. Hope is beginning. There's food, there's harvest, and they're able to go back and go seek out food there. 
And we're reminded that the Lord is at work even in the midst of famine. That he ultimately does have rescue for his people. So they turn and they begin to go back to Judah, to Bethlehem. And then verse 7 through 9, we see Naomi, really, she, we see her, this um, love of Naomi, this great sacrificial love of Naomi for her daughters-in-law, willing to die to self to love them. Verse 7 says, So she set out from the place where she was with her daughter, two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her, mother, to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, kissing them goodbye, sending them. So here, Naomi, as they're on their journey back, at some point, there's a conviction of heart. And she stops the journey. And she's willing to release these daughters-in-law to go back. She's willing to, to every hope that she might have, she's gonna, that she might have in these daughters-in-law, she's going to release them. And she's going to go on her own. And she shows such a love for them. She's caring about their life. And willing to embrace, really, this kind of moment of death in her life. Uh, Paul Miller, he mentions how suffering is the crucible of love. I know when we looked at 1 Peter, talked about, we talked about how suffering is the crucible of our faith. But it's a crucible of love, too. He says, the greater barrier to love is ego, the life of the self. The death of self offers ideal growing conditions for love. So sometimes... The death of the self opens up opportunity for us actually to love well. And here we see Ruth love. And she even, she blesses these two women with a double blessing. She says, may the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me, with her sons and, and with her. There's a kindness that she prays that they would have. And this is that kindness, that's that word, that hesed, that loving kindness she prays that they would see that because they've shown that to her. They've been kind to her. They've been willing to leave Moab, to leave their land, to leave their country, to leave everything and follow Naomi and go on this journey. And she releases them. And she wants the Lord to bless them and that they might find rest. But how do they respond? Let's look at verses 9 and 10. And they left they lifted, I'm sorry, they lifted up their voices and wept. They lifted up their voices and wept. So they were just filled with sorrow. They loved this woman. And they said, and they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. So together they say, No, we're not going to leave you. We affirm our commitment to go with you. We're going to go with you. And it, it gives really a picture of Naomi. She must have been an amazing woman, that they were willing to go with their mother-in-law and follow her into this foreign land. So we see this love of these women. But then Naomi, she, she laments. She has a cry of despair and lament. But it's outmatched, we'll see, by Ruth's love for her in verses 11 through 14. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that you may become, that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. 
Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. So Naomi just has this cry of lament. And she just makes as clear as possible that if they go with her, there's no hope. You, know, you come with me, there's no hope. There's not even a hope of what they would call a leveret marriage. And this is during the time where there was a provision in Deuteronomy 25 where it talked about if, if a husband um, passes away, that wife is able then to, to marry a brother of the husband a brother-in-law, and that through that brother-in-law that the child born through the brother-in-law, that son would be able to carry on the name of the deceased husband and be able to carry on the inheritance of that. Deuteronomy 25.6 says, The first son whom she bears shall succeed, so succeed in the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. So there's this option of, of this marriage. And she becomes clear. Naomi makes plain, hey, this marriage, it's not an option. This is not happening. This is not going to happen. She's, she tells them again, I'm old. Um, even if I were to marry today and, and conceive tonight and have twins that are both boys and they grow up, they might not marry you. She's saying, this is not an option. This is my lot in life. You do not need to join me in it. This is not going to happen. And she says, again, no, my daughters, for it's exceedingly bitter for me, for, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. As she looks at her situation, she hasn't lost faith in God. She hasn't lost her faith. But at the same time, she wonders if the Lord, is, his hand is against her. And she doesn't wonder if God has abandoned her, but she does see the hand of the Lord moving against her. And she just wonders what is going on. And it does feel that way, no doubt, for her. And yet we're going to see as we follow through on this story that the Lord is active. And he hasn't abandoned her, but he is moving and working. Even this rescue plan in the midst of this time where she feels that she is, is dead and has no hope. So they continue down this road, and no doubt there's just great despair in the heart of Naomi, and uh, probably a, a, a hint of cynicism rises up within her, and does in us sometimes when we walk through despair. But we're reminded that there's still great hope in this story as we walk through it. So we see verse 14, that these daughters... In law, they, they lift up their voice again and they, they weep. There is a great love for Naomi. But then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, saying, again, that was a kiss of, of departure. So she leaves. But then there's this change where there's hope that comes in because Ruth clings. Ruth clings to Naomi. She clings to her. So hope arises 
And this is the same word of cling that you see in Genesis where it talks about um, Adam and Eve. And God gives them instruction. It says in Genesis 2.24, Therefore man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. That, that holding fast, that clinging so Ruth, she clings to her. Ruth rejects that pragmatic, practical, what makes most sense solution and option. What makes just the best logical choice would be for her to go back to Moab, but she doesn't. She instead chooses sacrificial love in this time. She chooses sacrificial love, and she unites herself with Naomi. She unites her life and her future with Naomi and loves her. She doesn't abandon Naomi on this road, on this journey where she might be killed, even on the journey alone going back. She clings to her. And it's that picture of that hesed, that steadfast love, that loyal, stubborn love that she displays. And it's an example to us, and we'll see that example of God's love for for us, God's love for his people and made most clear through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So we see God answering the prayers of Ruth through, or the prayers of Naomi through Ruth. And as I think about this and I think of the love of Ruth, there's application for us that we might be those who extend that type of stubborn, sacrificial love to those around us who are in that low point as we see in the New Testament, we rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And may we extend and drop that sacrificial love upon them. But we're not quite done yet today with this passage. Because um, I think we need just a little bit of a spoiler um, for the story yeah, I'm going to be that guy who comes into the room as you're watching a movie and says, oh, isn't that the guy that dies at the end of this movie? Yeah, yeah. But this is a good spoiler, not, not a death spoiler. Um, but we go to the end of Ruth. Uh, as we think of this pivot in hope that comes in the book of Ruth, it points us to the very end, to chapter 4 in Ruth. In verse 17... We hear this of, of Naomi. It says in verse 17 of chapter 4, A son has been born to Naomi. A son has been born to Naomi. Well, we'll find out they're speaking of a son born to Ruth, the grandchild of Naomi that she embraces and loves. And a child is born, and they name him Obed. And it's, he was the father of Jesse, the father of David, King David. So it points that there's hope. So this is the picture that we have that's being painted for us. We see have Naomi, whose husband has died. Her sons have died. She's old, and her daughters-in-law, they are barren at this time. And she sees in her life that even if she were to, in that moment of the story today, that if she were to marry that night, by miracle, conceive, have twins, have boys, and they grow up and they marry, then maybe she's like, no, that's not going to happen. But here we get to the end of the story, and a son is born to, to Naomi. All seems lost, but what is impossible for man is, is possible for God. We have great hope as the one who is born is the great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus, King Jesus. So in the lowest point, 
God had a plan to shift and bring about salvation for the whole world. So there's times where it looks like all is lost, but the Lord is bringing about redemption, even in our lives. And our hope that we can find in this world is in Jesus. And this morning, maybe you come and and you find yourself in that deep, low point. And maybe you have not rested in Jesus. You don't know the hope of Jesus. I encourage you, even this morning, this is Naomi and her family. They returned. They turned and went back to Israel. There's a call to, to turn to God and rest and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and find the hope that's in him that can rescue even in the, the lowest points. And then for us, may we be reminded to, even as we lament at times, that the Lord is at work. And then we can look to our suffering servant and Savior, Jesus Christ, who died for us and then rose again victorious, suffering and glory. And may we also pray that the Lord help us to walk through difficult times, trusting in him and not taking the pragmatic approach out, but just trusting his hard path that he might be taking us down, knowing that he has not, he has not um, abandoned us. It's what has often been said of old, these are the severe mercies of God. That he's doing a work like a physician setting a broken bone. Uh, the pain of that broken bone being set is great, but there's healing that God is pointing us to. May we not despair and fall into cynicism, but trust in our God and know that he's bringing about rescue and salvation as we look to Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Father God, we thank you for, for your word and books like this that tell true stories of your work in the past and how they, they impact us today. That our lives are changed because of Jesus. We're thankful for your steadfast love, your stubborn, loyal, faithful love that you've poured out on us through Jesus Christ. And I do pray that their hearts here and those here who have yet to find the hope of Jesus and turn and trust in him as their Lord and Savior, that you'd move in them, that even this morning, that that commitment, that would be made even this morning. Lord, I pray as we are in the midst of all sorts of trials and difficulties in our lives, we pray that you would help us to look to Jesus, help us to not fall into despair and cynicism, but to trust that you are on your throne and that you are not, have not abandoned, but that you move and work through these severe mercies in our lives. And Lord, help us to be also better friends and brothers and sisters like Ruth, to love and to pour out the love that we've been shown in Christ to one another, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. This morning, we do respond by taking of the Lord's Supper where we take of the bread